0: Hey, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Tax Smart RAI Podcast. In this episode, we're joined by Parambala, who's a radiologist in Southern California who reached financial independence by the age of forty-one by building a multi-million-dollar real estate portfolio while working full-time and raising two young kids. She is founder and CEO of Generational Wealth MD and GW Capital, where she has helped thousands of physicians accelerate their path towards financial freedom through her coaching program and syndication opportunities. In this episode, we discuss her journey towards financial independence what most physicians get dead wrong about financial freedom, the four types of real estate investors, her take on the current market and a lot more. We're going to dive into all of that in just one minute after a quick word from dual city investments, conventional investment strategies are changing. Gone are the days of investing in real estate, strictly off of pro forma spreadsheets. The new market landscape has many investors reevaluating their portfolios and looking for the best place to passively earn a safe, consistent return. The dual city advantage fund is an evergreen 506 C open, ended fund that specializes in investing in commercial real estate. Dual City's ideal investor is an accredited investor who wants a portion of their portfolio in passive and diverse real estate investments without having the high risks of a single syndication. The Dual City Advantage Fund is outpacing public REIT ETFs by more than double, and while the rest of the market has been in flux, it has delivered consistent quarterly returns to its investors since its inception. To learn more about Dual City's value, strategies, and long-term vision, visit dualcityinvestments.com or call. Again, that's dualcityinvestments.com or call 864-757-2429. Without further ado, we'll jump right into today's episode. Param, thanks for taking the time to come on the show today. Would you be able to give our listeners a little bit of information on your background and how you got involved with real estate?
2: Yeah, absolutely, Tom. First of all, I'm super excited to be here, Tom and Brandon. I think I was part of Brandon's first tax course. And so uh, that was pretty intense and very informative. So I'm excited to be on here um, to chat with you guys. But I am a radiologist in Southern California. And I started investing in real estate in 2014, Um, really didn't know what I was doing, you know, uh, put it on the back burner. 2019, I had a rough career transition. And that's when I started looking at, you know, financial independence, passive income. And I realized that, compared to my stock portfolio my real estate was doing six times better with just like a passive buying turnkey rentals between equity built up over time and cash flow and that's when i decided i wanted to start amping that up because i didn't want to be in this position where there was a lot of anxiety with that um, transition, you know, personal and professional turmoil, and I didn't want to be in that position again. So it really started accelerating uh, my real estate acquisitions at that point. That's when I took the course, um, Brandon, I think it was 2020, 2021. Um, And uh, so I really educated myself, started doing the birth strategy where you start rehabbing projects, um, you know, adding value, um, did some short-term and mid-term rentals, tapped into those advanced tax strategies that both of you always talk about. And then, you know, that was when the pandemic hit also, and that was another transition um, for a lot of us. And I got to the point where I was working from home, taking care of kids, lost childcare, you know, no in-person schools. So that was another point where I was burning out. Fortunately, at that point, I had hit financial freedom through real estate, and so I was able to scale back. At that point, all of my... Family's expenses, including discretionary spending, travel, luxury spending, all of that was taken care of by pure cash flow from the real estate portfolio. And I went down to a day a week in medicine because I could. And since then, that's what I've been doing. So it feels like I'm living life and practicing medicine on my terms. And uh, so that was beautiful. It was also terrifying because, you know, I was. At home, I had more time. So I started building out this educational platform, Generational Wealth MD, where I was talking to more people about it because I feel like there weren't enough people talking about it and I had to figure it out the hard way. And so built out this community. We're now at 9,000 physicians in the community. Um, And so I coach over there just to have a more structured way for people to learn and have momentum and actually you know, take massive action while being within the community. Um, as I was doing that, I realized that half the community you know, were people who weren't interested in direct ownership. They wanted more passive way of investing in real estate while still getting those higher returns. So then I built out GW Capital, which is our syndication limb, where we help people invest passively embedded opportunities in the Sunbelt strong markets uh, and still really accelerated financial freedom. At this point, we're at $150 million And assets under management over eight hundred drawers, so a lot of growth, and a lot of that was, you know, came from the point where we wanted to add value and start educating people. So that's where we're at this point.
3: That's awesome! I love that story. You still practice one day a week?
2: One day a week, yes.
3: Yeah, cool. Yeah,
2: there's a whole identity thing when you're a physician, and then you suddenly have to, you know, it's just you, you can't stop. But my kids have my. My daughter still; she hasn't started school. My son is in online school, Uh, and so it's been great. I had like two, two and a half years where I was at home with them, and I could do that. But uh, yeah,
3: that's cool. That tax course that you mentioned—that was our original tax. Yes strategy foundation <laughs> course it was
2: all live i remember because felt like i was back in college i was like sitting down taking notes yeah. <laughs> it was it was very intense but i learned so much you know partial asset dispositions to minimum safe harbor i still use that a lot when i coach and uh, it was yeah. uh, super helpful especially yeah. strategy
3: yeah yeah that was back in the mighty networks days when we yes. Were in mighty networks. Yeah. yes yeah well tom we don't have that course anymore but what do we have if if somebody's hearing this they're like wait i want to be educated how, how can they do that
0: we do have a tax strategy foundation course it's it's not uh live at this point it is pre-recorded but it is very much in the similar vein of the course that param took so if you do want to learn more about that if you are interested in signing up for that you can go to www.taxsmartinvestors.com/courses and you could you could find it there if that's something you're interested in going through
3: there you go love it love it So based on your experience coaching and working with a lot of physicians, 9,000 physicians was just super impressive, by the way. What do you feel like most physicians get dead wrong about going down the path to financial freedom? Like, what do they all mess up as they try to work through obtaining financial freedom?
2: Yeah. And I don't know if this is specific to physicians, Brenda, but I think a lot of us just go down the rabbit hole of the traditional retirement model where we're thinking stock market and that's, you know, that's what you do. And so you hear this number thrown around a lot. It's like 25 times your expenses is what you need to have in your retirement nest egg. So if you need a hundred thousand a year to live off of your retirement nest egg needs to be 2.5 million. And that's based on the 4% safe withdrawal rate that only applies to a pure stock bond portfolio, which just means that you know in retirement, you can only safely withdraw 4% from your stock portfolio for you to be able to live off of it and have it last you 30 to 50 years. Now, when you look at that number, that is why it typically takes people 20 to 30 years to hit financial freedom and to get to the point where you can retire because you have a 4% safe withdrawal rate. Now, with real estate, and you guys talk about this a lot, your returns are multifold, right? So it's cash flow, which could be up to 30, 40% if it's a, you know, it's a short-term rental or a midterm rental. You have equity buildup that's happening because of debt pay down, um, which again is like another six percent. Market appreciation if you have a leveraged property that goes up from a 3% annual increase. All the way up to 12% because you now are using leverage to your advantage. You have inflation hedge over time. Your rents go up and your, your debt is staying steady, which is your largest expense. So your cash flow is increasing over time. And then the tax savings part, which you guys talk about a lot, right? Sometimes that could be 100% ROI in year one just from tax savings, depending on how you've structured the deal. So when you put all of that together, your ROI is going up from say 20 to 25% when you're investing in syndications or doing turnkey long term rentals, all the way up to 200%, depending on how you're structuring the deal with a board project or short term rentals in year one. And so that just means that the time, and we never think about it this way, we always say, okay, if I want to retire sooner, it's, I have to save more, or I have to earn more, my expenses have to go down, that's the way I get to financial freedom. But the part that no one really talks about is that ROI of your portfolio. When you bump up the ROI of your portfolio, that's really accelerating you to financial freedom. And so you can go from 30 years with a traditional retirement model all the way, you can as quickly as one to three years, depending on what you're doing. And it just means that you need a smaller part of money to get to financial Freedom and people just—I don't think they traditionally are, are taught to look at it that way. And I think that's what is super powerful. And you know, from these numbers, you know, if you're doubling how much you're saving, you're buckling down, you're taking on extra shifts, you're working harder, you're doubling how much you're saving, and you're putting that towards your retirement. That's going to have a much smaller impact than doubling the ROI of your portfolio. And so that's like you know that's what we need to be focusing on.
3: And you mentioned a little bit ago that you hit the financial freedom milestone, number, however you define it. How did you know that you were financially free? Like you you looked at your situation and you said, oh, I made it. What were you looking at?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I like to be very data-driven. So I actually have a financial independence worksheet that I created um, at that point when I was like, you know, that was when there was that transition at work. And I was like, okay, what is my passive income? What is my financial independence number? And so I think it's... that really kickstarted my journey. So it's a free resource. If you go to generationalwealthmd.com and the resources section, you can find the financial independence worksheet. It kind of makes you write down all your expenses, including debt that you may have, 529 plans that you're contributing to, how much you want to put aside for travel and you know eating out in fancy places. you put all of that down. You factor in what your current portfolio is. And so you look at what number you need to hit in terms of passive income for you to live off of it and be completely free. And then you also factor in what the ROI of your current portfolio is, how much you're going to have in pension, social security, You plug all of that in, and then you see what the gap is and you try to bridge it essentially.
0: So once you hit that number, that's when you knew, like you used the spreadsheet, once you hit that number, that's when you knew you were financially free?
2: So for me, that number was 10,000, Tom. And so when I coach people, especially people living in California, that number can be as high as $35,000, right? So you have to figure out what that number is for you. And and there's a a huge variance over there. But when I wanted to hit that number purely based on cash flow from my real estate portfolio now, and I also had, I'm still a hybrid investor. There's all the entire stock portfolio, the 401 and the brokerage accounts that I invested in prior to 2019, when I wasn't as aggressive about real estate. So that's like my backup. And that itself would probably hit half of my financial independence number. And then you also have the equity buildup that's happening in real estate over time that you could essentially tap into if you needed to. I don't factor in all of those. Those are my backups, right? My stock portfolio, the equity buildup, any income I'm making while I'm working in medicine. I wanted to consider them as backups just to be conservative, but I, I knew I, hit the point uh, of financial freedom when just cash flow from my portfolio was hitting my financial independence number. And I guess there were different ways of looking at it, but I just like being very conservative about it.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great way to look at it. Because at the end of the day, the cash flow is what you're able to spend, right? Um, the equity buildup, you would have to use like cash out refis to, to tap into that. So that's a very good yes. way to look at it.
2: And then the best part is that that cash flow is increasing over time and it's inflation adjusted. And so you don't have to worry as much because it's already factoring inflation. So you don't have to worry about your expenses going up because when that happens, because of inflation, your cash flow is increasing also.
0: Right. You're increasing the rent expense as that time goes on.
2: Yes. Yes. And your mortgage is fixed like typically with conventional mortgages. And so whenever that happens, your cash flow is increasing over time.
0: Great point. I think you mentioned within your story that you were able to fast track your path towards this financial freedom in a year while you were working full time and raising two young kids. Can you talk a little bit about how you made that happen? Because that's, that's really fascinating.
2: Yeah, that's, um, that's a good point, Tom. You know, I call myself a short term hustler, right? And so when I look at real estate personas, I think there are four different kinds of people and you have to fit yourself in the right box. Otherwise, you're going to frustrate yourself. So there are the investors who just want to be super passive, um, you know, give their money to someone and then completely stay out of it. There are the legacy builders who invest in turnkey long-term rentals and it's going to take time for them to get to financial freedom. But, you know, over time, the net worth is constantly increasing and that's a great strategy. I wanted to get to financial freedom within one to three years. And so I'm what I call the, the short-term hustler. I wanted to do borrow projects where, you know, you're doing a rehab, you're increasing the value of the property, building up instant equity. As you're doing that, you're also increasing the cash flow because your rents are increasing. But then you're also able to tap into the equity that you've built up do a refi, pull that money out tax free, and then use that for the next property so that you keep building and scaling your portfolio. And so I did that. I also tapped into some of those tax strategies that you guys talk about. I had a short term rental, and that was when I was working full time. So I was able to materially participate in it and hit $100 and more than anyone else and actually get the tax saving on the back end, which essentially helped me to recycle that money also. So between the value add and the tax savings and using midterm and short term rentals that inherently have higher cash flow, I was able to recycle the same part of money and get to financial freedom faster without having to wait to save up more money. And so that's what I did. And that's a great way to do it. But then there are also people who I think the last category is like the entrepreneur who really wants to save on taxes, but they want to build a business and that excites them. I think short-term rentals are a great strategy in building a larger short-term rental portfolio works for people like that. That's another way where you can really accelerate to financial freedom. But I think those last two categories, the short-term hustler, where you put in the work and then, so, and so that's a very fluid strategy, right? So the first year you may be working really hard, which is what I was doing. And then I hit real estate professional status the next year. But at some point, you can scale back because with that strategy, you can go back to being passive on your portfolio. That's what I wanted to do, and I think that works well for a lot of people. Unless you want to be a short-term rental empire builder, and then you kind of, you, that's like a business—you kind of need to stay on top of it. But both of those strategies work really well for anyone who's trying to get to financial freedom in a few years.
0: That's really fascinating that you broke it down like that. I've never heard someone break it down into those four categories, but those four categories definitely exist in the real estate investing community. And the short-term hustlers are really interesting because I think about it the same way, right? Like if you want to start a portfolio, there's like a big boulder, if you will, that you have to start pushing at some point, but eventually that boulder is moving. And once it's moving, you could could go back into that passive situation that you mentioned. So I, I found that really fascinating.
2: Yeah. And I find that when I coach, if you put someone in the wrong box or you don't help them find the right box for them, then they're going to frustrate themselves. Because if someone isn't built as an entrepreneur and they have a short-term rental portfolio, then they're either not optimizing it or as time goes along, they aren't really ensuring that they're staying on top of things and then they lose momentum and that can be frustrating. So yeah, it's all. I think it's really important for people to find the right box for them so that they're using their potential optimally, but also hitting the goals the way they want to.
0: So. You know, kind of shifting gears, I guess you would say here a little bit, I know you mentioned that you got that boulder started and everything. What does your portfolio look like today? And what role do you play today within your portfolio?
2: So my direct ownership portfolio at this point is pretty passive, like I said. So I probably spend 15 minutes a month on my direct ownership portfolio. But right now I'm also a co-GP in the apartment complexes that we have. We have them in Arizona, Atlanta, Greenville, uh, South Carolina, and I'm more active in that. So a lot of my time and effort goes in over there. So at this point, like I mentioned before, we are at over $800 and $150 million in assets under management over all of this. And I'm still acquiring directly, but I think i've shifted strategies where i want more stabilized class a assets that are um that don't really require that uh, heavy lifting up front uh, just because i'm at the point where my direct portfolio needs to be passive so i can focus more on the syndication aspect so i think that's the best part the best part is that you can be you can tap into all the tax strategies you guys talk about the short-term rental strategy real estate professional status but it's very fluid where in a given calendar year you can shift towards being super passive if you need to as long as that meets your goals right and so having the ability to to pivot at any point i think is is important to keep in mind so you know that you're not you don't have to go in full steam all the time
0: that's a really good observation too the part where you mentioned that you decide to focus on like higher end buildings that have less maintenance because they're more passive i think that's something that is is a great transition from like you know you start off with like say the monopoly right you start off building as the short-term hustler you build your initial portfolio and eventually you could start acquiring these larger buildings whether it be through a syndicate or what have you, I think that's interesting transition as well.
2: Yeah, the transition comes in terms of a the kind of assets that you hold, right? So class A, stabilized in strong markets that are cash flowing, don't require any rehab. Newer vintage properties, all of which really reduces your work over there. But then I've noticed that over time, as you progress along, um, all of us will also tend to shift how much leverage we have in our portfolio. And so I think when I started out, it was heavily leveraged. Now I like to be between fifty to sixty percent leveraged, just because I like it to have uh, to be a little safer from the leverage standpoint, but also throw out more cash flow. So those are transitions. I think as a real estate investor, over time you're going to have those transitions, and it's kind of nice to to know that you don't have to stick with the you know put yourself in the same bucket. Over time, you can always um, mold your portfolio to look like what makes sense for you at that particular point.
0: Makes sense. Makes sense. With the current market right now, like right, so many so many people are concerned with where we are today. Interest rates have you know rapidly accelerated over the last year or two. What's your current take on the real estate market?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, Tom. And then. For people who are both scaling and those who are starting are always struggling with the same thing, right? Is this the time I jump in? Um, what do we do? So I'll just get, tell you our experience. And this is, you know, for smaller portfolios and larger portfolios, essentially, essentially the same thing, right? So strategy obviously needs to shift and criteria is shifting also because you're not going to have the same returns you were looking at, I would say, like in the last decade, right? So if you go into um, really strong markets and buy properties, you're probably not going to see that 10% cash in cash that you saw maybe three or four years ago. So strategy shifting, and I, I like to look at it as, you know, when you're trying to build your up, uh, build up your strategy, pick your market and think of your criteria, you think of it in three different categories, right? When we're buying, Obviously, you really want to make sure you're buying in really strong markets because every real estate, uh, real estate is hyper local. Every market is going to perform differently when we go into a recession. So you want to buy in strong markets. This is probably the time to have a longer term strategy. It's not the best time to be doing flips or planning for shorter holds and basing it on market appreciation. So you want to have a longer term strategy so you can weather the market cycle and then go in and buy cash flowing assets from day one as opposed to banking on rents going up and having the same. Rent growth that we've had in the last two years. So that's not going to happen. So, ideally, you want to buy something that is safer. And so, strong markets, cash flowing assets. But then, the second part of that is going to be you also have to have the ability to hold your assets. And so, every time you go in now, uh, we're being super aggressive about stress testing. This is for the apartment syndications we're going in. This is also when I coach for short term rentals, uh, especially, and then also in long term rentals. Stress test your deals, make sure it can weather a drop in revenue, holding on to adequate cash reserves. That's big all across the real estate space, right? The thing that's going to allow you to hold on to that asset till things get better is going to be having the cash buffer. Um, so we're seeing a lot of that. And then having good debt, um, if you're a small investor starting out, you don't have to worry about it too much because as long as you have long-term fixed debt, uh, you're probably going to do fine. This is a bigger concern when you're looking at mid-size and large multi-family assets. Uh, but that's as far as the holding the asset part is, con- is concerned. But then um, the other part is going to be shifts in strategy, which is, again, super important because you can't do what you did five years ago and expect to get the same returns. This is where we're thinking more in terms of, okay, so if you want to make the numbers work, A, you may be okay with buying something that's breaking even or spitting on a little bit of cash, especially in like you know in the strong markets. But if you are looking for those higher cash flows, then you may need to be a little more creative in terms of going in and doing value-add, buying properties at discounts, um, doing the short-term rental or the mid-term rental strategy so you actually have those higher cash flows in there. But again, the key is going to be to stress test those deals and have those cash buffers to allow you to hold the asset.
3: Yeah, it's been interesting talking with a lot of different investors uh, over the past six or so months and what their various strategies are to handle the uh, coming storm potentially of declining values, declining rental growth rates and everything. But one thing that I've learned is the cash reserves, because everybody always touts cash reserves, make sure you have enough cash. And you know, for me, it, it was just always like, make sure that I can cover six months of mortgage payments and expenses and stuff like that. But what I've come to find is it really depends on your debt. You kind of nailed it. Like if you have long-term fixed debts, your risk is a lot lower compared to somebody that has like a two-year bridge loan. So I know that there's a lot of the syndicates and we're actually having a podcast on this here next week or in two weeks on this particular topic. We're bringing on some guys to talk about the rise of usage of bridge debt over the past few years to acquire syndication deals. And now you've got a bunch of GPs that can't pay uh, distributions to investors because their um, their rate cap has increased drastically. You know it, it's gone from an eighty k rate cap to a million dollar rate cap. So their bank is now forcing them to escrow extra money to prepare for that yeah. expenditure. And all that extra money was supposed to be spent on value add or even investor distributions. Now they can't do that, but they also can't refinance because the value hasn't increased because Expenses have all increased with inflation. Property taxes, insurance has gone way up, and they can't sell it because there's no, you know, equity. Effectively, anyway, it's been really interesting seeing that side of the coin. Yeah, because the people that I think will weather that storm are the ones that have significant cash sitting on the sidelines, like people that overraised capital and just built a huge reserve and i know that there are a handful of people out there that have done that so it's just it's just different perspectives on like make sure that you're sitting on cash how much cash it kind of depends on the debt structure that you have what what does your capital structure look like which is interesting you know and i mean obviously it makes it, it makes logical sense but i i never really thought about it until becoming aware of of this problem that that i think a lot of the gps have right now
2: Yeah. And that's an interesting point that you bring up, Brandon, because the commercial space is very different, right? Commercial loans, because you have DSCR requirements that service uh, service coverage ratio requirements to meet for, you know, as far as your lender is concerned. And I think everybody who acquired deals after mid-2022 is fine because they saw the rising interest rates and they have rate caps on there and they're more aware of what the problems could be. But people who acquired in 2020 and 2021 and early 2022, I think, yeah, they have variable rates on there, no rate caps, and they can struggle. But you're absolutely right. It's about going to be about cash reserves or the ability to bring in other funding partners who can meet that cash requirement, capital requirement. But if you're in the, you know, for smaller investors in the conventional space, I think um, as long as you know what you're doing with debt and getting fixed term, fixed uh, debt, even if you are getting, I think arms, you know, are are just becoming a little more popular. If you have a five-year arm, then that can still work because we are hoping rates will come down in the next few years. But just being aware of that and and the requirements around that. The good thing, though, with real estate is that, you know, there's risk with market fluctuations and that's more in the commercial space. But as long as you're in the conventional lending space, rents don't drop as much. This is for long-term rentals, short-term rentals. Um, Even in 07, 08, um, when we had the the largest correction in market prices that we've known, rents overall nationally dropped by about 10%, 5% in 08, another 4% in 09 before going right back up. So if you stress test your deal and you know that you can weather that, you're fine. And that's true even for the hospitality space, because like the other question is like, what about short-term rentals? And the only data we have is what we have in the hospitality space over the last four or five recessions. And it was similar. It was a 10%. And drop in revenue for a year before the numbers went back up. So as long as you're forecasting for that, the smaller investor is fine. Um, yeah.
3: So with, with all that being said, you know, we're, we're always buyers, right? What type of deals are you looking at in 2023? Like, what are you paying attention to? Or how are you trying to source deals now with this sort of shifting environment?
2: So... If you talk about me personally, I think my strategy is a little different now, Brandon, only because of where I am. I'm at the point where I'm living off of my portfolio. So I'm trying to be a little more conservative. So I'm looking at more stabilized, A minus, B plus assets in strong landlord-friendly markets that are cash flowing from day one. That's just my strategy right now. Uh, But I would say even with, as far as the syndications are concerned, the deals we're looking at, we're looking at properties that are discounted and that are safe and conservative. So um, something that's, already stabilized, which still has operational efficiencies that we can bring to the table where we can go in with agency debt. Um, Again, lower leverage has been key. So we have been at about 55 to 60% leverage in the last few deals we've done. And so staying uh, lower leverage, huge cash reserves and strong landlord-friendly markets uh, where there's lots of migration, tons of growth. So just staying safe, again, trying to find those discounted properties um, is what we've been doing.
0: You know, actually, I have a question that I've never actually asked anybody here on the podcast before, but it's a question that always kind of lingers on my mind. And as someone who has both a direct portfolio and someone who is like a co-GP for, you know, on syndications, what are your thoughts on the long term? efficacy of the syndication model if you're looking to hold real estate long term because we all know, you know, syndications usually are somewhere between like a 5 and 7 year hold, maybe less, and then you're flying yeah. into another syndication versus if you have a portfolio, you can hold those properties if you have it direct, you could hold them indefinitely. And I yeah. guess what's, what's your thoughts on that and how does that play into your overall, I guess, portfolio allocation when you're making decisions? <clears throat>
2: That's an excellent question, Tom. So I think it goes back to the four buckets, right? So what kind of investor are you? And so as a co-GP, I think being a GP or a short-term rental owner, I think it's like being an entrepreneur because that is a business that you need to focus on. But I think your question is, it's probably going to be, do I want to be an investor, invest as an LP versus be a long-term legacy builder bucket where you're buying direct ownership, um, real estate, and they could just be turnkey properties, right? So the way I look at it is, um, it's essentially three things. So um, what are the returns like and how much effort am, am I putting in? And um, the last one's going to be control, right? How much control do I like? So if you look at returns, If you're an LP, uh, what happens is that when you're in, LP in syndications, the five-year model, which is a typical syndication model, someone else is going in, we're doing the value add plan. And so you have, you know, you're building up equity and then you're exiting. So your returns end up being, let's talk about AAR, average annualized return, because it's easier to compare. Your average annualized return is around 20% once you factor in the GP share and then the exit and then all of the transaction fees. So 20% average annualized return, again, significantly higher than that 4% safe withdrawal rate. And so that's why people like being there. There's not a lot of effort you just bet a syndicator and once you know that you trust the syndicator you're essentially you know very hands-off from there on there's not a lot of control over there there's still a lot of tax efficiency right And and you guys talk about this a lot because of depreciation you're not paying taxes on the cash flow that you're getting from it and then hopefully with sophisticated sponsors, you are able to 1031 that into the next deal. So you don't have gains or depreciation recapture over there. Right? So you still have the tax efficiencies. You don't have a lot of control over it. Um, and in a sense, I believe you need to keep 1031 um, with the same sponsor because you uh, 1031 as an entity uh, uh just the way it's structured. right? And so, so you don't have a lot of control, but you're getting the returns and you're completely hands off. Now, if you want to be a legacy builder and say, I want to buy a turnkey long-term rental, that's Cash flowing, I'm not going to do a rehab, you know, so I'm not going to get real estate professional, not boosting my returns. But currently rentals, your AAR tends to be about that, start off at around 20% once you factor in equity buildup from debt pay down and, and um, appreciation. But over time, what happens, and like this is what we're talking about, the inflation hedge, is that your returns from that portfolio keep increasing over time because your cash flow is increasing, your equity is building up, and then your debt stays the same. So you start getting... Into higher and higher returns, and then you're able to have more control. You can 1031 that into something if you wanted to. You you can do with that portfolio what you want. So you have more control, but you need to be a little more educated. So you're spending time educating yourself and making sure it's optimized. Sometimes you may want to look at return on equity and you know move things around. So you need to be a little more hands on. And I think it's for two different people. You know, two different personalities. There are those who are just you know it's legacy wealth that want to grow this over time and hand it off and over time your returns are going to increase but then there's a person who's completely hands-off and is okay with that but is okay with not having control so i think you kind of have to decide early on where you want to be and if you're willing to put in that little extra effort to be the legacy builder
0: that's a great way to break it down because it's like a lot of the concerns i have like i'm on the lp side right and i'm always like yeah you eventually want to pass something down right to the next generation so it's like eventually i'll have to shift into like the short-term hustler mentality to get that initial portfolio So I'm just really curious to get your take on it. And I think this helped me a lot. So I appreciate that because now I know. Yeah,
2: I think the short term hustler, Tom, is if you're doing it for yourself, you want to get to that financial independence point where then everything else is just because you're passionate about it, right? So you're living off of your portfolio. But if you have a longer horizon, and you say, I want to get to that point in 10 years, you could very easily doing it being an LP. So you just cut the time in half if you you know, half or less when you use the the Burr or the M- MTR or shock mental strategy.
0: Uh, that's awesome. That's awesome. So I know we talked about a lot here today. What's next? Like what's next for you? What's the future hold for you and what you have going on?
2: So um, I think uh I think like the basis of everything we do is a why, right? So first was okay, I want financial independence. And then I hit financial independence. And I'm like, okay, why am I doing everything that I'm doing? And yes, I love adding value and educating people. But I think the, the next transition point for us is going to be impact investing. So now we have a nonprofit in India, GW Gives, um, and the whole mission is to empower children with disabilities in rural India, because that's where I see the greatest inequity. And uh, we've, we're really starting amping our efforts over there. Um, you know, our goal is to donate a million dollars to charity in the next three years. And so that that's next, impact investing. I like it because it's also, you know, I think it's something our community takes pride in because as the community grows, then we're able to do more and um yeah that's that's next um Obviously we're the we're growing, the community's growing. We want to be able to impact more and more physicians. And then the impact goes beyond that family, right? It goes on to the next generation because you're passing that knowledge down to the next generation. So that's pretty powerful. And then as far as the syndications, again, we're we're growing, we're looking to grow and bring better opportunities to the community. Again, strong markets, um, trying to we're right now focused on the traditional, the bur um, 5 year hold syndications are probably gonna add on uh different asset classes where there may be more cash flow up front. It's not just about the value add and equity build up over time. So we're going to see a little bit of a shift over there. But uh, but yeah, that's that's where we're going. I'm I'm most passionate about the uh, the nonprofit work that we're doing. And I'd love to see that grow.
0: That's very exciting. I think after this conversation today, it's very clear that you're a great coach. You have a high degree of emotional intelligence and kind of how to put people into different buckets within the real estate community. Uh, if people wanted to learn more about you or get in contact with you or, or become part of your community, how could they go about doing so?
2: Uh, Yeah. uh, Thank you, Tom. Um, generationalwealthmd.com is the website and there are a ton of free resources in there. If you go to the resources section, free calculators for people who are looking at long-term or short-term rentals, the financial independence worksheet is also in the resources section. And that's a great way to get in touch with us.
0: All right. So we'll go ahead and drop that in the show notes for everybody who's listening. And Param want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was a very insightful episode and we're looking forward to releasing it for everybody.
2: Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Brandon, Tom.